Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. It's been a bit of a longer break between episodes than usual, so welcome back. We'll definitely be making up for lost time over the next couple of months, so stay tuned for a double bill of Radicals in Conversation, probably in June. I'm your host Chris Brown, and I'm excited to be back in the home studio today with another really amazing guest, Leah Cohen. Leah is the former politics editor at Galdem. She works now for Project 17, an advice centre which supports migrant families with no recourse to public funds. Her work focuses on the intersections of race, gender and migration, and she's written for Vice, Open Democracy and The Guardian. She's also the author of Border Nation, A Story of Migration, which is a fantastic new book out now from Pluto Press. So our discussion today is going to be all about borders, their history, whose interests they serve and how people are actively resisting them today. We'll also be talking about the compelling case for border abolition. As ever, podcast listeners can get 50% off the book through plutobooks.com for the next month using the coupon podcast at the checkout. It is a fantastic book at a great price, so I strongly encourage folks to check that out. Now, just before we dive into today's discussion, it's time for me to give a quick shout out to Pluto's newest Patreon patrons. Yvette, Aoife O'Brien, Victoria H, Luke, Aristides Quintilianus, Julia Omapas, Lake MacDonald, Louise Barber, Alex Spice and Rochelle Russell. So a big thanks to all of the above for your membership and to all of our other patrons who continue to offer their solidarity each month. Check out the Patreon member benefits if you haven't already. You can get big discounts on print books, free ebooks, merchandise and the full length versions of this podcast. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press to find out more. All right, so without further ado, let's get back to today's discussion with Leah Cohen, author of Border Nation. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us today, Leah. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start off with something pretty basic, I suppose. What impelled you to write this uh, excellent new book, Border Nation, and who is it for? Who's your intended audience? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of different things. I've been working in the migrants' rights sector um, and what in the UK is called the women's sector or the gender-based violence sector for the past decade, I guess. And alongside that kind of doing grassroots organising in the UK feminist movement and the um, kind of no borders, anti-deportation, anti-detention movement here. And I suppose, yeah, my kind of work and and political organising combined to produce my kind of interest on this topic and wanting to bring together information in one place about the different elements of Britain's border regime as well as the giving a bit of information about like the colonial underpinnings of the border apparatus as I feel like that's sometimes a bit of a missing part of the conversation and the book is for everyone it's for as many people as would be interested in reading it I think I wanted to write something which felt relatively digestible and um a kind of common piece of feedback is that the book is very accessible, which is great. That was definitely the intended purpose. Um, I wanted to create something that would be interesting to people who perhaps, you know, knew a bit about Britain's borders, whether through their own lived experience or their own research or work or organising, 
as well as people who have no kind of particular grounding in border politics at all, but maybe a bit of a prickling sense that this idea, this myth that there are some people that deserve to be here somehow and others that don't, doesn't really stack up. So the book is designed to present information for all of those audiences and beyond um, about Britain's border regime, how it came to exist and what the impacts of it are and the fact that we can work together to kind of dismantle the border. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'll give a quick shout out to yeah the Outspoken by Pluto series, which the book is within, uh, and to Neda Tehrani, who's the commissioner editor on that series, because all the books in that series, ostensibly it's, a, I guess, for younger readers, but actually... Mm-hmm. The thing you, that you said about them just being accessible books is really the main thing. I've read every book in the series and they're all fantastic and they all speak to one another as well really nicely. So if yeah. you haven't already looked at the other books in the series, do go and check them out because, yeah, they're they're definitely fantastic. So, yeah, the title of the book is Border Nation, A Story of Migration. Can you say a little bit more about what's entailed by this idea of the border nation, you know, quote unquote? So mm. what are its origins and what's the story of its development, really? Well, borders, the idea of no borders actually isn't a brand new idea. It's it's borders themselves that are Mm. a relatively new concept. So even in the late 19th century, most of the world's borders could be quite freely crossed without a passport. More specifically, Britain's immigration laws, which I suppose provide the blueprints for the enforcement of borders on British soil, could be said to originate perhaps with the 1905 um, Aliens Act. And there's a great book by Nadine L. Anani called Bordering Britain, Mm. in which she explains how the Aliens Act primarily targeted poor Jewish people who were categorised as aliens who were seeking protection from persecution. But prior to, yeah, around 1905, laws had been passed in countries that were colonised by Britain to stop people from travelling from the colonies to the central hub of the empire. And I think what this tells us is that Britain's borders are, of course, a fiction ostensibly created to shut out racialized people from the UK in order to protect the interests and the capital of the rich and powerful. And we can conceive of the way in which borders upholds this idea of um, racial capitalism, which was mm. coined by Cedric Robinson. He describes it as the idea that capitalism is an economic system reliant on the accumulation of capital and capital can only accumulate by producing and moving through relations of severe inequality among human beings and groups of humans. So this is the kind of racist foundation of borders, the fact that they exist to protect the interests of capital. But from kind of 1905 onwards, immigration laws very much continue the bordering project. We have the British Nationality Act in 1948, which is often pointed to as the key moment in the country's migration history in that it gave the status of British citizen to all Commonwealth subjects and recognised their right to work and settle in the UK and bring their families here. And this is, of course, what leads to what is known as the Windrush generation of people coming to the UK very much as citizens. Mm. And then we have the right to reside in the UK being restricted 23 years later by the 1971 Immigration Act. And from that point, the right of abode can only be claimed by people who have a prior link to the UK. So people who have like a parent or grandparent who was born here. At that time, that basically just means white people. So, you know, even just these few examples show us how borders are this 
relatively new concept of the past 100-ish years. And we can very much see why they exist and how they start to harden and who they are bordering against. Prior to this, I think there's little concern about borders in the same way. Perhaps this, I don't know, could be attributable to the relative immobility of most people, travel being quite expensive. In the modern day, there's obviously lots of reasons why people migrate, you know, including wars and environmental degradation and to escape poverty or economic stagnation, often the result of Britain's colonial, neo-colonial interventions. And in response to this, we see bordering happening in step with the expansion of of racial capitalism. Mm. I mean, that conjures up for me the line from Sivan Anden, you know, we are here because you were there. Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about that, actually, like the role of colonial education systems and curricula themselves, because I think you say in the book, you know, there's there's a reason why people from, say, India or from Caribbean countries have historically come to Britain. Mm. You know, they don't just arrive here at random. Yes. Um, Yeah. Could you say a bit more about, I guess, uh, education in in the colonial context? Yeah, well, it's very much. I mean, this is a kind of simplistic analysis, but I think it's a very much double edged sword of part of the colonial project was about Britain going out into the colonies and saying Britain is wonderful and being speaking English is the best thing you can do and we have this great religion and you should you know behave in the way that we do and read Shakespeare and John Donne and you know this is the way to be the best type of human you can be and very much exports those uh, anglo-centric ideals you know in every aspect of life whether it's education or um, you know arts literature beauty ideals anything like that The idea of that, to an extent, is to kind of keep people in their place. But then, as as you've just outlined, you know, the the impact of that is that people can speak English and people can kind of come to the UK and perhaps access the jobs market in a way that they wouldn't have been able to if that colonial education system, of course, incredibly violent in that it kind of sought to wipe out languages and histories and knowledge bases of, of other countries, um, it provided this kind of weapon that could be subverted and used as an entry point into the UK. And yeah, I kind of pull on a couple of examples of that in the book. Mm. So you kind of mentioned a bit about the jobs market there already. One thing that comes through in the book is like how Britain seems to go through phases of being very hot and cold about welcoming I guess migration you know with certain strings attached always Mm. Um, and it's very much based on what's going on in terms of the economy at the time could you say a bit more about that? Yeah I think it's I suppose one of the more recent examples is around the expansion of the European Union and how in the rhetoric around Brexit um, a lot of people are worried that you know we've had free movement and now there are going to be these borders between Britain and Europe and those borders have always very much existed for working class people or people that don't have wealth Mm. Um, and we can see that in how Operation Nexus panned out so this was a joint operation between the Home Office and the the police and it was about targeting rough sleeping Eastern European migrants effectively Mm. because there was this kind of sneaky bit of guidance that was put out that said if you were rough sleeping then you weren't exercising your treaty rights, which are the things you need to be doing to kind of be in the country as a as an EEA migrant. So that was kind of used as a way to target and deport vast waves of, you know, rough sleeping, working class Europeans back out of the UK effectively. 
so I think that shows you how even if it seems that a border has kind of opened up you know you might be welcomed here if you can bring your labor here and if you can help to make the country richer but as soon as you're perceived as not towing the line with those obligations the border very much kind of comes at you fast in a way um i guess we'll talk a little bit more about the well like deportation and immigration detention and so on in a little bit but just to to go back for a second yeah you refer to peter fryer's book uh, staying power in your own which mm. kind of talks about how black people have been in britain for centuries um and yet that migration is framed you know by the elite by the media as though it was this kind of recent and sort of alarming phenomenon how much do you think the fostering or the kind of yeah the fostering of anti-immigrant sentiment relies on a lack of education sort of amongst the general populace about britain's like colonial history yeah i mean i suppose the the lack of education is is part of the the fostering of that sentiment almost like the causality is kind of almost in the other direction it's not so much that anti-immigration sentiment like capitalizes on the lack of knowledge the lack of knowledge is a kind of intended you know I understand it to be an intended strategy to ensure that racialized people broadly can never truly kind of get the sense of belonging or or even if you do that can be kind of disrupted at any term yeah so yeah I definitely think that kind of campaigns and efforts and projects to to kind of expand the curriculum to ensure that there's a more accurate representation of what Britain's history really is is important but I'm also kind of tentative and unsure about whether this government or any government would really be that invested in that process Hmm. Um, because you would then be giving people the tools and knowledge to understand inequality writ large in this country which could and should kind of provoke real kind of revolution as knowledge and education does have that power. So, yeah, I think ensuring that people know the true history of this country is, is an important thing. I don't know that the state is going to make that happen for us. Um, I think we might have to kind of continue to have our own kind of grassroots educational and political educational programs to ensure that we that we learn and disseminate that knowledge. Mm. You talk a bit about the um, foundational myth of meritocracy, right? How that's deeply embedded in the British psyche. Mm. Um, and it's quite an insidious idea that, you know, if you just work hard enough, then you can make it. And you've already alluded to how there is, you know, that bringing economic benefits is often like a requirement of migrants to even be tolerated uh, in the economy and in society. So could you say a bit more about how this myth of meritocracy actually impacts on the lived experiences of migrants and racialized people? I think it poses a different burden which continues to create this artificial distinction between people that are born in this country and not even people that are born in this country because people that are born in this country are still you know racialized and targeted Mm. but white people who are born in this country and who fit into the specific vision that the state has for itself are kind of told that they're in this different category So if you come to this country or if your family came to this country, there's this idea that you somehow have an obligation to kind of pay it back or, as you say, contribute. Whereas contrary to that, I would argue that for the vast majority of people coming to this country, particularly from the global south and formerly colonised countries, and we know that Britain has invaded or kind of interfered in 90% of the countries um, in the world, those people have actually an entitlement 
to the wealth um, and the riches of colonialism and the wealth that's been hoarded up in this country through Britain's kind of various exploits. So it's interesting, this idea that if you're coming to this country from a place which, you know, Britain has has marauded and restructured and plunged into debt and disrupted government structures and, you know, dismantled or made it very difficult to practice religions and cultural practices and languages, the idea that you would have to come here and then contribute to the hub of, of that place that has, has done that to the place you've come from, it's kind of illogical as a, as a baseline. But um, it feeds in very much to narratives around the fictional idea that people come to the country to, to be a drain on resources, whereas we very much... And, and that narrative around, no, I'm, I'm a migrant, I actually contribute, is almost a direct response to that myth of, of being a drain on resources, which just we just know that not to be true. And I suppose that's the difficulty of when you respond directly to a piece of racist rhetoric by trying to present a kind of logical rebuttal. Um, mm. You get looped into a kind of slightly illogical narrative, I guess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I suppose there's always a danger of falling into the trap of trying to demonstrate the economic or the business case for you know migration yeah. and actually that's feels like a bit of a cul-de-sac at best definitely I mean sometimes it, it for sure serves a strategic purpose you know especially when you're dealing with the government that we have at the moment who only really cares about the figures and only really cares about profit if you're trying to make material changes to people's lives you know one example off the top of my head is that the fee to register your child as a British citizen is like a thousand pounds at the moment mm. and there's bits of kind of strategic litigation happening to try and stop that because it's it's clearly very discriminatory you could very much make the business case that if a family is destitute for example and doesn't have any leave to remain if a child can get their citizenship and and the family can can get leave to be in the country then they can then access mainstream welfare support rather than having to local councils having to provide piecemeal support um, over long periods of time which will total up to more than the thousand pound fee so there's there's moments I suppose where the the monetary case is an avenue that will improve people's lives in the here and now but I agree with you that as a longer term strategy I think it it leads us down to a bit of a a dead end of like atomizing specific instances and people's experiences without really tackling the root issue of the kind of race inherent racism of the border and of border restrictions themselves. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd be interested to talk just briefly about the media in the role that the media plays in building borders, because you have a section of the book on that and you discuss how, you know, either it often reinforces racialized tropes on the one hand. And then there was also a section on the way in which, you know, how it reports on stories like the refugee crisis, mm. um, you know, how events are conveyed through a human interest angle that never calls into question structural inequality. So yeah, yeah, I was just interested if you could say a little bit more about anything that stands out to you about, um, yeah, the media's role. I mean, I think it's an ongoing question for me as someone who is a is a writer and has done bits of kind of journalism. I think it's hard to pitch a story about structural inequality. There's not many kind of visuals for it. I mean, the way that mm. the media works at the moment, you definitely people will always ask, you know, what's the 
as you say, the human interest angle, who's going to be the specific family that you're interviewing. And yeah, that can take you down a route of almost suggesting that there are these kind of anomalous, terrible instances, but that the structure in itself is fine. And that, you know, things like the Windrush scandal is, is the structure not working as it should, or the system not working as it should. I mean, even just the framing of the the Windrush scandal, which kind of came around 2017, 2018, the idea of it being a scandal is is interesting because there's actually such a long trajectory of targeted deportations of people from the Windrush countries, of, of Caribbean people, Caribbean elders, that it almost invisibilizes the larger issue. And the fact that, you know, politicians across the spectrum, including the very departments that were seeking to kind of have these net removal targets, were saying, you know, these mealy-mouthed apologies of, you know, this is awful and this is almost like a glitch in the system. Mm. And I think that rhetoric of the framing of it as a scandal as opposed to like, no, this is border controls. Like, this is how it works. This is how the border works. It's never fair because the border itself is inherently unfair it's hard when you're trying to kind of get these buzzy phrases that are going to capture public interest but without kind of obfuscating the broader issue I think Mm. capturing that nuance when we have this like 24-hour news cycle of like short tweets and people just reading headlines and then retweeting the article when they haven't even read, read it you know but they've just read the headline it's really hard to to get that nuance and I don't think I've arrived at like a solution or or an idea of what the alternative is. But I suppose it's maybe the types of stories that are being used to illuminate kind of what it really means to migrate and what it means to be part of a migrant community in this country. We don't see a load of like high profile news stories about migrant communities you know, working class people standing shoulder to shoulder in like labour struggles, which we know there's a long history of in this country. Like we don't see those types of stories which actually represent the massive amount of solidarity and commonality between people kind of classed as migrants and non-migrants. We see these very kind of essentializing and sensationalizing stories because that's what gets clicks and sells papers. Mm. And I suppose uh, to add to that, I guess there's very rarely a sense of the agency of the people, mm. you know, who are, you know, drown in the Mediterranean or who are trafficked. Um, they're mm. usually just portrayed as victims. And Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw that with the 39 people who died in Essex in the, the lorry containers. Um, mm. I think it was Pretty Patel was very kind of quick to, she was very careful about how she said it on Twitter, but very quick to kind of say you know human trafficking is terrible and we need to crack down on it you know it was a couple of hours after or very soon after the lorry had been discovered that there could not have possibly been enough intel Mm. to say whether this was what is you know defined as a trafficking case there's very specific criteria when it comes to trafficking actually a lot of what we're talking about is like um labor exploitation when we're talking about things like what the the government has framed as modern slavery. Um, If you delve a bit into some of the other news stories around that case of the the 39 people who died in Essex, it wasn't that they were, you know, kidnapped out of their beds in the middle of the night and, like, dragged across the border. That's not to say, of course, by any means, that they agreed to die. That's absolutely not 
what the case was. But what they didn't need was the person driving the lorry to be like thrown in prison and that solves the problem. Actually, the site of violence in that story is the border itself. Mm. If the border didn't exist, then those people could have come to the country for their various reasons. But instead, they they died because they had to take you know, this informal route because there was no other way to get here. And the pivoting of of that new story about it being about trafficking rather than it being about, you know, the border regime is killing people because people can't cross the border safely um, was a very kind of strategic choice that I didn't really see the media um, kind of unpacking because, yeah, stories about trafficking are very kind of sensational, interesting, whereas stories about people dying because they come into contact with border violence don't really fit the government agenda in the same way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You've kind of answered the next question, which is, you know, we often see this argument presented that harder borders are supposed to act as a deterrent, uh, you know, people trafficking um, and Mm. therefore reduce uh, violence or extreme exploitation. But the reality is really the opposite, that they create the conditions for exploitation and so, you know, I'll ask the question anyway, do harder borders make for effective borders? I think, well, I suppose it depends on what like effect you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I But um, I think there's definitely this rhetoric when we're talking about something like modern slavery and, you know, the Modern Slavery Act, which was brought about by Theresa May. And, you know, she's saying that we need to, you know, border force need to work closely and crack down on these gang masters you know, these poor people that are being trafficked and enslaved. There's a particular rhetoric of, and this is by no means to say that, you know, trafficking and labour exploitation isn't bad. Of course it is. And of course the remedies to that are about workers' rights and making sure that people have recourse when they are exploited and when they do have terrible working conditions that they can access recourse in those situations. But there's this rhetoric of vulnerability and protection, which I think are used to both mask and also enable the exploitation of people crossing state borders. And I think a certain element of that is very dehumanising. There's a very intentional dehumanisation and infantilization that happens when people's agency is very purposefully stripped away through language and through policy and through laws. And, you know, the, the tragic death of 39 people in the lorry container in Essex, as I've mentioned, is, is an example of that. What happens here rather than seeing that the vulnerability is produced in the upholding of the border the vulnerability is seen as something you know perhaps pathological or inherent about the person who crosses the border which of course means that the state then kind of gives itself a mandate to swoop in as their guardian and decide what's best for them even though a person who has raised thousands of pounds to make a very dangerous trip to the UK clearly has a very clear grasp of strategy and resource management decision making that's not something obviously that you just do on a whim I don't think it's likely that people want to be you know pulled out of the things that they've paid lots of money to kind of cross borders and their communities got behind them and loaned them money and they've crossed the border I don't necessarily think that they would want the government to say okay we're going to pluck you out of this situation give you 45 days or whatever it is to like reflect and recover and then we're going to deport you to the place that you've just spent like your whole family's life savings on coming from because what that doesn't do is address the material circumstances that has led to that person 
making the decision based on, you know, being an expert on their own life that this is the best choice for them. Um, it doesn't address poverty. It doesn't address structural inequality and global inequality. It just plucks that person out of that one situation where they weren't able to report that their boss hadn't paid them for a month or report the fact that they were being expected to live in a room with 10 people or report the fact that their passport had been taken away from them. It doesn't address any of those issues. It just uh, kind of covers it up, sweeps it under the rug and dissolves that very specific incidence of exploitation without addressing the larger structure that has led to that, really. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the ways then in which borders are, you know, increasingly enacted um, beyond the physical barrier, right, beyond the fence or wall at, you know, airports, other points of entry to the country? Because there's been this creep recently, hasn't there, into Mm. all walks of life. And there's kind of an expectation that loads of different kinds of people will be (laughs) policing the border. Um, So yeah, could you say a bit more about how we've witnessed this kind of creep? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you said, we've seen, particularly in the last decade, kind of via the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts, the ramping up of what we might refer to as everyday borders. So very much, as you say, rather than the border just being reinforced at the periphery or at a port of entry, we see people within our communities being turned into de facto border guards by these immigration laws. So, for example, we know that there's a piece of legislation um, which came in in 2014-2015 called Right to Rent, which means that landlords now have to check ID documents for tenants or lodgers, or they could risk a fine or jail time. And in practice, what this means is landlords are less likely to rent to people who don't have a British passport or kind of straightforward documentation proving their right to reside or or perhaps any documentation at all Um, and in research carried out by the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants because of right to rent over a quarter of landlords that they surveyed would be reluctant to rent to somebody with um, I quote a foreign sounding name so this is kind of one example of the border being reinforced from within the country and you know, whether it's a landlord or a state agent, as much as we politically might not like those people anyway, you know, they are being turned into, in addition to the the terrible things they might already do, they're being turned into border guards. And we see this in other places as well. So there's, you know, immigration checks and charges for secondary care and healthcare settings, which includes things like people giving birth um, and the sharing of data also between healthcare and uh, the Home Office, although this has been reduced through the Patients Not Passports campaign, which everybody should check out if you don't know about that already. Mm. But in practice, what this means is that people are scared to access healthcare, or they simply can't afford to access it, or they're, you know, accumulating huge debts and being slapped with these bills after perhaps having like very big traumatic procedures, surgery or giving birth, and then having this massive bill to pay. And we see the same types of checks and barriers in educational settings and when people are trying to set up bank accounts um, and lots of other places. And I guess one other example, just to flag, is since 2012, a no recourse to public funds condition has been routinely imposed on all migrants who are granted the legal right to live and work in the UK, which is called limited leave to remain. And it's a condition that's placed on most people's limited leave to remain 
which basically prohibits them from accessing public funds such as local authority housing, universal credit, housing benefit, child benefit, that kind of thing, personal independence payments. And what it means is if you're struggling to get by or if you aren't working or you're not allowed to work or you you know can't pay your rent, particularly in the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people really falling on hard times, you end up facing destitution and homelessness because you can't access any state support. So the NRPF condition basically locks people out of society and makes it really impossible to get by and contributes to what we were talking earlier about this kind of two-tier system where there's this kind of big chunk of people who are basically living on this kind of precarious high cliff with their NRPF condition and if you know they lose their job or in a pandemic perhaps you are being supported by people from your church and now they can't be giving you money anymore you find yourself right at the edge of that cliff kind of looking into an abyss where there's no welfare safety net underneath and that's very much the hostile environment at play which of course was Theresa May's stated aim in 2012 to kind of make life for migrant communities uh, pretty untenable. Mm. And I suppose the the stated aim of the border regime is to sort of act as a deterrent. Um, Mm. But one thing that emerges in the book is there's a little bit of a contradiction with that. And then the reality of some things like immigration detention centers, you know, Mm. being placed out in the sticks or deportation chartered flights, like taking place in the dead of night um, to avoid scrutiny. So is there another logic at play behind the expansion of the border regime and you know, the prison industrial complex, which is something else that you talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there is a real contradiction, as you say, in the fact that a lot of the aspects of the border regime are allegedly about making Britain not look like an appealing place to come, that it's not going to be an easy ride. I think definitely the other side of that is that borders, kind of all aspects of the border, whether that's deportations or immigration detention which are run by these kind of private outsourced companies like Serco and G4S and Taskor and Geo Group they all exist to make profit so you know as deportations for example have increased in the past couple of decades so too have the profits being made by the companies um, who carry them out so the current I think it's 525 million pound contract to provide guards to escort people who are being deported is held by an outsourcing company called Mighty. And then there's other companies making profits off deportations, obviously including the airlines that carry them out, such as British Airways, EasyJet, Qatar Airways and Turkish Airlines. Actually, the only airline carrier to have publicly committed, although the follow-through is unclear, to ceasing deportations from the UK is Virgin Airlines after a um, kind of long campaign by um, different grassroots groups. but. Um, Kind of furthermore, in order to further facilitate the deportation of people from the UK into purpose-built prisons outside the country, and you you mentioned the prison industrial complex, this web of structures and uh, bodies, which includes prisons and policing and tagging and surveillance and, and deportation. In recent years, the UK government has actually made plans to build prisons in its former colonies, such as Jamaica and Nigeria. So In a visit to Jamaica in 2015, um, David Cameron announced his plans to spend millions of pounds of aid money on building a prison in Jamaica where people living in Britain can be sent to serve prison sentences. And then a couple of years later, Boris Johnson 
said that he was going to um, make this agreement between the UK and Nigeria, meaning that people um, in prison in Nigeria and the UK can be returned to complete their sentences in their respective countries. So almost like a kind of prisoner swap system. Um, and the UK government was going to build this, I think they've gone ahead with that, actually, this 112-bed wing in a prison um, in Lagos. So you see how Britain's border and the regime of detention and deportation dovetails with the prison industrial complex very much. And we've seen that really ramping up in the way that people might you know, be locked up in prison for a certain amount of years. And then once they've been released from prison, then transferred to immigration detention and automatically considered for deportation, there's a very kind of smooth transition between those two aspects of the prison industrial complex. And it's absolutely tied up in in money making and those private companies that are profiting from those systems. Mm. It'd be good to talk a little bit about the actual conditions inside these places, because I guess it's worth pointing out that on the one hand, you know, although, as you say in the book, it's often framed as this uh, administrative or like legal process. Mm. And yet it's clearly criminalizing because, you know, many of these detention centers are housed in former high security prisons. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in Dorset, the Vern on Portland it used yeah, to be a prison, then it was a detention center and now it's a prison again. Yeah. So, you know, there's clearly that's not a coincidence. But what are the similarities between immigration detention with prison and where are the departures between the two because mm. i think you mention some interesting ways in the book mm. the conditions within detention centers are, are pretty bad um as reported by people inside them the the food that's provided to people who are locked up is of very poor quality often very kind of repetitive you know chips three times a day chips and rice as a meal it's not nutritious um, access to healthcare is very bad. Um, there's a real kind of culture of disbelief within the detention system. So when people are reporting different healthcare concerns, they're told, you know, just take paracetamol, like irrespective of what it is. People with really high blood pressure just being told, take paracetamol until they're, you know, bleeding from the nose. And then finally, perhaps the guards take it seriously. Even then, if they do get a, a doctor's appointment, they have to wear often they have to wear handcuffs to attend those appointments. So people are really reluctant to report quite serious issues because they don't want to be, you know, taken in handcuffs outside of the centre and into a, a doctor's surgery. That's a very kind of humiliating way for a person to be treated. In terms of the similarities, I don't know how similar this would be, actually. It depends on the prison itself. But in immigration detention, you get your... If you have a smartphone, you can't have that in the centre. So you'd get that taken off you and you'd be given a very simple like brick phone that doesn't have any internet access or a camera and journalists can't go inside detention centers they're, they're very kind of shadowy places there's a real lack of scrutiny there's a there's a really limited amount of people who can actually go in there and and see what the conditions are in a kind of scrutinizing capacity one of the significant differences that are often reported by people in detention, particularly if they've been in prison and then they've been in immigration detention, is that in prison you have a, a release date. So you're told, typically you're told this is how long you're going to be in here and people kind of count down the days. Um, mm. Whereas in immigration detention, Britain is the only country in Europe to detain people for immigration purposes indefinitely. So you are kind of counting up the days is what people say which takes a real toll 
on people's mental health if you have absolutely no idea when you're going to leave that place whether it's going to be one month or three years that's really uh really has a very negative impact and we see that reflected in high rates of self-harm and, and suicide and, and deaths in detention um kind of comparative to the non-detained population mm. makes for grim reading mm. uh, definitely um and i want us to talk a little bit about some of the ways in which people can act in solidarity uh, a bit later on in the discussion mm. um i guess just to change tack a little bit and this is sort of a standing question on this podcast, you know, regardless of the subject, but I think you'd written much of the book before the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering how the pandemic has shifted things in relation to the border regime. Mm. You know, has it, has it reinforced its logic of exclusion? Has it created any openings? Yeah. Just interested in how the last year has played out in relation to what you write about in the book. Yeah. It was very interesting to see how, I mean, interesting in a incredibly uh, dark way to see how <laughs> the virus spread between cities and, and the kind of story of inequality that tells us you know it wasn't working class low income or undocumented people from the global south who were flying around the world in you know April May June July last year who spread the virus from the pattern of the spread we can maybe infer that it was people from the global north exercising their privilege or their ability to move and go where they want and that very much played a role in spreading the virus as it seemed to, to catch hold and spike the quickest in cities that are these international travel hubs and centres of business like New York, Milan, Paris, London and so on. And of course, there are other factors at play, like the median age of different populations around the world and that kind of thing. But I think it's a very clear example of who gets to board across and move between cities and who then experiences the sharp edge of immigration policies that map out who can and can't be mobile in that same way. I think that was one of the most kind of noticeable things for me at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, other smaller but like still very important things is the way that some of the way that the border regime and the kind of immigration system in this country strategically makes itself very difficult to navigate almost as if like, well, that's the only way it can function. You know, you have to go to Liverpool if you want to apply for this thing, or you have to go to Croydon if you want to get this document. Whereas we've seen in the pandemic that, oh, surprisingly, everything can be done online <laughs> and like things can be done by Zoom. Mm. Um, and there's very much that tension within the No Borders movement of like the onward march to abolish borders whilst also recognising that you know, a politics of inclusion and finding ways for people to get their papers and to get, um, you know, access to, to mainstream welfare systems and things like that is are very important material changes that need to happen. So seeing that those systems can actually be navigated more easily, the pandemic has, you know, shown that systems can be adapted and they can be done online without people having to, like, bring all of their life's documents to you know, a centre in one specific city in the country. I think that's had a material positive impact on people's lives as alongside that we continue to kind of march forwards and ensure that people don't need citizenship in order to access the things they want. But in the here and now, that's that's one of the routes available to people. Hmm. Definitely want to talk about No Borders uh, a little bit more in a minute. Because I imagine many of our listeners uh, will already be advocates of like a border abolition position 
although some people might sympathize with it and think perhaps it's a bit unrealistic or, or utopian. Um, but I really love the final section of the book because it takes mm. apart a lot of the common arguments against abolition or a lot of the, you know, um, worries, I suppose. Mm. So I thought it might be interesting to just actually delve into a few of those common arguments or common questions here because mm. you, you pose them in the book yeah. in, the, in the concluding section. And I would just be interested to hear you answer those questions. Um, so let me start with this one, which is won't relaxing borders and, you know, therefore introducing a larger migrant workforce drive down wages and ruin the economy? I mean, I think it's part of what we were kind of speaking a bit about earlier, the idea that migrant workers have always been very much at the forefront of struggles for improving working conditions in this country, whether it's like, you know, the, the Grunwick strike or, you know, women in Yarlswood getting paid a pound an hour to do the exact types of labour that they were criminalised and detained for doing um, outside of detention. I think the finger to be pointed about things like wages being driven down is the the people who control the wages. It's always going to be the bosses and the people who are, you know, regulating minimum wages. It's not workers who are setting those bars. So yeah, I think that maybe the quick answer is around um, if people are concerned about about working conditions or about their own personal working conditions, joining a union or kind of organising collectively with your fellow workers, whether they are documented or undocumented, um, is going to be where you're going to gather the most power. Um, It's not going to be about saying that certain people can't come into the country or can't come into certain industries. Hmm. Okay, next uh, question from the end of the book is, what about the strain on the National Health Service? Yeah. That's a common one. I think it's a similar one in that it's a bit of a misdirection. Um, A lot of the strain on the the National Health Service has been around kind of chronic underfunding by the government of the NHS. That's what's led to, you know, longer waiting times and not enough beds and understaffing and and, um, incredible stress being placed on staff. Again, I'm, I'm reluctant to like do that thing that we were talking about earlier of like responding to a question that itself like isn't particularly like sensical but typically people that cross borders and come to this country um, are less likely to actually access the National Health Service than people who who are already here so the idea that there's like a disproportionate strain doesn't really stack up of course people who come here everybody who lives here whether they're documented or not should be able to access healthcare that's a kind of basic fundamental I think but the questions around the problems that are being faced by the NHS at the moment we should again point those questions directly at the government that that funds it or doesn't fund it and ask them to sort it out. Hmm. Okay cool next question how would we keep out all the terrorists and criminals? I think I always kind of try and unpick this question a little bit by I'm picking the idea of criminalisation. So the types of acts and groups of people that are disproportionately criminalised, we know are often working class, disproportionately people of colour who are racialised, including in stop and searches, which then funnels people into prison for what are termed minor offences. You know, we can ask questions about why do people have to break the law in some instances? Is it because they don't have access to proper 
you know, housing to employment opportunities to mental health care, all of these things, if we tackle the root causes of the drivers of lawbreaking, that's more likely to get us to a more kind of robust and rigorous solution than this kind of specious idea that it's people crossing a border and coming to the country that are disproportionately breaking the law, which which they aren't. Um, on the question of terrorism, I think, you know, research shows that terrorists are the majority of, of people who've done things which are termed as terrorism in this country are born here, are, are British. So, you know, if that's something that concerns you, kind of the border isn't, or reinforcing the border any more than it already is, which I don't know how you would do that, isn't going to stop that happening. Again, I think the kind of more radical approach is looking at why are those people doing those things and how can you, are there any solutions that you can present that are going to stop them happening rather than after the fact punishing people or or stopping, irrelevantly stopping people from coming to the country just because you've profiled them as being somehow in some kind of public imagination more likely to do something which is framed as a terrorist act. Mm. Yeah, definitely. All right, just a couple more on this thread. But um I'm enjoying this pop quiz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit different. Um so we we've touched a little bit on this already in terms of modern slavery. Mm. But the next question is if we relax borders, won't that only encourage more people trafficking? Mm. Yeah, as as we've kind of discussed a bit earlier the harms and the violence of things like trafficking can only exist or, or are much more likely to exist if you have a border that somebody can be trafficked across in the sense that if you have a border that says that certain groups of people can't come here or if you don't have enough money, you can't come here because you can't afford to you know, buy property here or buy a visa or, or however that works. If you removed those restrictions, there would be no, there wouldn't be that border for a person to be trafficked across. A lot of the issue or the the problem with people who are in situations of labour exploitation when they come to the country, a lot of the remedies for those situations are about improving workers' rights and ensuring that people, you know, whether it's if they're experiencing harassment at work or they're being asked to do things that they didn't agree to do or their their living conditions are terrible or they're not being given any breaks or their working conditions are detrimental to their health. If people aren't documented, you know, it's difficult for them to find ways to remedy those situations. Whereas if we removed the border, not just in the sense of like the fence around the country, but the whole idea of the border, the idea that if you're not documented, you can't access public services, you can't report things to the police because they're going to report you to the Home Office should you want to report to the police if you remove all of those barriers then actually the the vulnerability that's produced through the border and through border enforcement then reduces and the issue of trafficking is kind of remedied through those means Mm. yeah definitely okay so last one of these um britain's already too full where would everybody live yeah this was actually a question that was asked by someone close to me um Mm. They were worried that, I think the phrase they used was, you can't fit more than a pint in a pint jar. Um, <laughs> this idea that like Britain is bursting to the seams. And it's just kind of factually not true. Like over half of Britain is like woodland and grassland and kind of agricultural land. Uh, there's, there's definitely enough room for lots more people to come to the country. 
you know, we have a massive housing crisis in the country at the moment. That's not because there's not enough room. It's not even because there's not enough houses. It's because there's a real inequality of access to those houses. Um, And we've seen over the past few decades, the kind of systematic selling off of of social housing stock through various kind of capitalist schemes, money-making schemes, which has meant that, you know, local authorities have this tens of thousands long lists of people waiting for social housing council properties having to enter the the private rental market which in itself is you know incredibly extortionate and uh, a rip-off and very precarious so the issue presented is kind of a false one it's not you know we're not struggling for space right now it's more that the ideology that's underpinned what what we're now living in the housing crisis needs to be addressed and kind of pushed back against so that everybody can access kind of safe comfortable and affordable housing well hopefully people will if they weren't already a bit more convinced of the no borders position will (laughs) will have found that uh, enlightening that was leah cohen author of border nation if you're enjoying this discussion and want to keep listening then head over to patreon.com where patrons can access the full unabridged version of this and other episodes of the podcast a reminder, of course, that listeners can get an exclusive 50% off the book through plutobooks.com for the next month. Just use the coupon podcast at the checkout. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals and Conversations. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.